Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilobaseta. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Oksana Maksimchuk and Max Rosachinsky, translators of Mariana Kianowska, The Voices of Babun Yar, published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2022. Oksana Maksimchuk and uh, Max Rosachinsky are poets, scholars, and translators. Their translations were featured in such venues as Modern Poetry and Translation, Words Without Borders, Poetry International, and Best European Fiction Series. They are winners of the first place in the 2014 Joseph Brodsky-Steven Spender Translation Competition, and they co-edited Words for War, New Poems from Ukraine, and co-translated Apricots of Donbass, a collection of selected poems by Yuba Yakimchuk and the Voices of Babun Yar, a book of poems by Mariana Kianovska. Their work has been supported by the Ukrainian Book Institute, Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, uh, Peterson Literary Fund, Fulbright Scholar Program, National Endowment for the Humanities, and National Endowment for the Arts. Hello, Oksana. Hello, Max. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us and for organizing the podcast. Could we start with reading a poem from the volume? I hold the bullet under my tongue. It tastes of plum, transporting me to the verge of a change as the sky gets closer. My heart feels as small as a throbbing vein, beating softly. Don't be afraid, I tell it. Don't cry, you must breathe and speak. Snella, snella, they shout, but it's hard to keep going when, you know, this is it, the end. Your entire body stinks of death, the wounds that no longer heal, blooming scabs. It's a wonder. I somehow still manage to put one foot in front of the other, passing corpses of those who'd collapsed coatless and barefoot. I am used to it now, not averting my gaze, may go for a closer look. If I want to know why that woman, for instance, got shot in the back, though she so loved singing and all that she wanted was love. I enter a burning cloud, a wheezing fire. Here is another body, a child, so small, all alone. I am forced to lower my eyes. I'd pick it up in my arms, but every minute's a bullet that swells below my tongue, a nail driven into the heart. I am following in the footsteps of Ezekiel, Aaron, Ora, Adam, Micha, Yehuda, Sarah. They are right here before me. We enter a cloud of smoke. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, the tragedy of Babun Yar is not usually included in a history, in a general history course on the Second World War in the USA or elsewhere in the West. Um, what would you tell your audiences 
who are not familiar with what transpired just within a couple of days in Babanyar and then within the subsequent two years. Um, where would you start? So, um, Babanyar is unique because it was the first um, massacre um, that was orchestrated at this scale and um, in this specific way. So there were various types of genocides and massacres before, but it was um, staged and executed in a specific way that inspired a lot of the later massacres that happened after 1941. So what happened is that um, the Cave Jewish population was at its peak in 1939, and when the Germans invaded in um, 1941, by that time, a lot of the Jews had already left. They fled because they knew that the Germans are coming. Um, so all of the remaining Jews, after the German occupation, were ordered to show up to this intersection of the two streets. And they were um, informed that if they don't show up, they will be shot. And that they, uh, the purpose of this um, summoning is going to be a relocation. So they were told to bring valuables, clothes, um, and to come at a very specific time. They didn't know that they were going to be executed. And um, Baban Yar was not yet a place of execution. Nobody was thinking that um, this is where they're going to be led, and nobody associated it with uh, what it would become over the coming two years, namely the place where many, many people, uh, hundreds of thousands, would be executed for a, a whole range of um, alleged crimes. So what happened in those two days, the last two days of September, um, or last two, three days, was that the remaining 34,000 of Kiev's Jews had been exterminated uh, in the ravine. And um, the poetry collection is attempting to give voice to these victims as well as to some other victims because as you mentioned in the following two years it wasn't just the whatever Jews that were emerging and um, still being identified getting caught whoever didn't show up that day um, that were being executed but also dissidents um, gypsies, homosexuals, whoever the Nazis usually targeted. And this lasted for the two years of the Nazi occupation of Kyiv. So it became this place of massacre. And the, the number of victims executed there overall is estimated to be over 200,000. Mm -hmm. So at the Nuremberg trial, actually, the Germans were saying that none of the Jews suspected um, that this was going to happen because their plan had been uh, very elegantly and efficiently put into action. They were not yet known to be exterminating people. Everybody thought that they were going to be sent somewhere, either to work in the East or to be evacuated um, to or our, I mean, to the, to the West, to, to Germany. Um, so um, I guess that's that's something by way of the introduction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Max, would you like to add anything? 
No, I mean, besides that the orchestration of the massacre was very orderly and precise um, with some economy of ammunition. Um, it's as we know from recollections, those were headshots as opposed to machine gun shots, which would be a pure waste of ammunition in German, from German perspective. And um, yes, um, from the from poems by Mariana Kianovska, we actually see those, um, uh, hear some echoes of those hesitating voices who do not know exactly where they are going. Um, there were some suspicions in some cases because they entered through the gate to the, the old Jewish cemetery, right? And it's already reminiscent of death. Um, but nothing was known about the German plan of mass execution. But where they met the intersection of, um, let me see, these two streets, we actually had to do the walk on Google Maps yeah, to imagine precisely how they... Um, proceeded to their place of death. So Malmeka and Dorohozhetska, mm-hmm. um, it's about a mile away from Babanyar. And um, um, another thing to add is that there are about 30 survivors. So mm-hmm. out of 34,000 people, 30 survivors, that's very, very efficient. And um, as Max is describing, they were usually given headshots. Um, and then the local... Uh, collaborators were usually involved in uh, burying the uh, the corpses, so it would just be like a thin layer of ground between um, of soil between um, between people between rows of people. And uh, this massacre is also known as the Holocaust by bullets. And as you described, the method of uh, extermination uh, was um, brutal. Um, And uh, as you uh, pointed out, um, there was some information that was available right after the massacre um, uh, took place and after Kiev was liberated, um, all the atrocities were revealed to some point or to, uh, to, to some to some extent. Uh, but um, of course, there was some sort of strategy, right, to uh, somehow suppress this memory about what happened um, uh, in Baban Yar. And um, Mariana Kianovska's uh, volume uh, is an attempt to speak about the tragedy on both individual and collective levels. And there is this motive of speaking. It's hard to speak about the killings and about the memory of being a witness of killings. But there is a point when speaking becomes possible and necessary. And I would like to read out just a couple of lines from the volume uh, pertaining to this motive of speaking. Uh, It's page 39 uh, in my um, copy. Only now can I speak of this. Brother Levy yelled, come take a look at these cherries shot cherry stones at me, and I shot right back at him. To this day, it hurts me inside my chest. To this day, I rustle rooted in only now can I speak of this. So, in your opinion, what are those steps that have to be undertaken in order to start being able to talk about um, tragedies like Babam Yar? What enables this kind of act of speaking? Well, first of all, having survived. And second is passage of time that creates this um, reflective distance without which which speaking is impossible. Um, So even for a person who witnessed a tragic event, it takes a lot of time to uh, reconcile herself, himself with uh, 
what she witnessed and come up with a more or less consistent story with the narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. I think the failure to die with the others can be a very um, can be a burden for so many survivors, and still is. Um, I wanted to just take a step back and um, add something about the context in which the Baban Yar massacre happened, and that happened in the context of the Battle of Kiev, oh, which that's... involved seven hundred thousand casualties, uh, mainly on the Soviet side. So, in the context of um, that massive loss of life, I think, and that was the thinking behind the Soviet suppression of the distinctiveness of the uh, Baban Yar massacre, um, the numbers um, just blended right in with the tragedy, and the tragedy also um, seemed to be common, right? So it was the tragedy of German invasion and occupation, which uh, had specific consequences on the civilian population of Kyiv, including the Jews of Kyiv. So they were not the only ones massacred, and that's what the Soviet narrative attempted to emphasize. The reason it was silenced is because um, there would be a story that was in some ways unique because they were massacred as a specific group mm. um, that um, would distinguish one group uh, as a victim um, as if it were um, bearing some particular marker of victimhood that others did not share. So it was this specific, I think, competition between different types of victimhoods that the Soviet narrative that was trying to unify uh, everybody around the same trauma of German invasion and resistance, the local resistance to the invasion and the massive costs that were borne by the civilian population that resulted from the invasion. That that was the reason for suppression. And you can, um, you can sort of understand from that perspective also why, um, why it does make sense to talk about these shared traumas in a single breath, why um, the Baban Yar massacre is continuous with other civilian atrocities uh, and why all of these victims fall together into a single uh, group of the victims in the Battle of Kiev. Right, so um, in Soviet history, Baban Yar is often used in, as an illustration of German atrocities, and Soviets would love to speak of German atrocities in the same way as they speak of the atrocities of the White Army and so on. And um, what what is interesting and what is uncomfortable here is the question what uh, what what historical events led to Baban Yar, and there we understand that there is Soviet responsibility too, um, to not to help Kiev enough, um, to wait for for the moment when the defenses of Kiev collapsed pretty much, and half a million of um, warriors got imprisoned, and that of course, of course, it was known that Germany carries the, the uh, Holocaust to Eastern Europe, and that the policy is extermination of Jews. But now, when when they invaded Kiev with the Jewish population, this is what what happened. So, collapse of Kiev, um, the surrender of Kiev garrison is not discussed in Soviet history at all. But Baban Yar is illustratively used as this case of German atrocities. Um, speaking um, along associative lines, speaking of other Soviet atrocities like Crimean Red Terror, about which we have a poem by Maximilian Voloshin, there the story was a bit different in terms of efficiency because there the Soviets still used the ideology of class struggle and extermination of the entire class, of collaborants associated with the White Army. 
and that they they, they use machine guns um, with no economy of ammunition. Mm -hmm. And here the situation is very different in terms of like recordings of how much ammo was spent and precise numbers of soldiers needed to complete the job um, from the German side. Another issue, of course, is the role of the local population, because according to um, the witness accounts, um, and the population at that point was mainly women, children, and the elderly, because other people had been recruited into the army, and this was the case for the Jewish population, as well as for the local non-Jewish population, the Ukrainians and the Russians, and whoever else was in Kiev at the moment. But... They um, they sort of, you know, looked out the window. Some of them were aligning the streets and some of them were even trying to take um, some of the children, right? Yes. I mean, right now it is apparent, especially in the context of uh, still ongoing war and full-scale Russian invasion, that not not so many efforts, as, as not as much as we wanted, and not so many military equipment was sent to Kiev to defend it, um, by contrast with, say, Moscow and St. Petersburg, right? So Kiev is the third largest capital of the Soviet Union, and it was sacrificed in mm -hmm. a way. Right. And then there are questions about what the local population could have done differently right. to have protected mm -hmm. the Jews from this. And maybe it could have, and maybe it couldn't, because as... As I'm mentioning, the demographic was very specific and not capable of putting up resistance to armed uh, German men and their local, uh, I guess, Ukrainian and Russian collaborators. Mm -hmm. I think on the Soviet side, when it became apparent that the situation is hopeless, I mean, they would put up a, a lot more resistance for, say, Sevastopol and the, the fleet. I'm and all the military bases, as opposed to... No, I, I, I understand, but not caring about civilian population is a part of this logic, where yeah. you um, try to reserve your resources for future battles and thinking of like military equipment mostly. Not... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted just to go back to that idea uh, about how the Soviet historiographies uh, represented the tragedy in Babun Yar and connect this kind of approach to uh, somehow uh, distort uh, the historical events to the present moment when uh, the um, um, uh, Russian government today is very much uh, exploiting and abusing all the atrocities that were committed by the Nazi Germans in Ukraine to justify their opinion on uh, the current uh, Ukrainian government being Nazi and saying that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine because uh, that kind of history was presented as some sort of uh, as some sort of an episode that uh, can, uh, confirmed the Ukrainians' collaboration uh, with uh, Nazi Germans. So again, well, as you pointed out, um, uh, in the uh, Soviet Union, history was very much distorted, and the same story we can observe today, but um, in the context of the uh, current Russian uh, policies as well. And in the context yeah. of Sergei Lesnitsyn's documentary. Right. Uh, so the problem is that Ukraine was under occupation for so long, for many years, and um, this was the case in every occupied territory and is the case in occupied territory now when uh, a lot of, not a lot, but a significant proportion of uh, Ukrainian local population chooses to collaborate with the enemy because 
they don't see the situation as um, um, changing in in the direction of uh, reunification, and so they just try to build their life. And um, if that involves, you know, telling mm-hmm. uh, on their neighbors, um, knowing probably that these people are going to get killed, some of the people do that as well. So it's a constant, I guess, problem, and um, it's. Um, yeah, it's amusing because uh, it reverses. Like the irony is that the collaborants are now the collaborants with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking and the of- Russians have persuaded them that they're like saving the country against the Nazis. Speaking of that historical context of uh, of, of Babun Yar massacre, actually, we have uh, what Russian propaganda does to it and how it presents it is, by the way, of historical synecdoche, when we take a small part and present it as a whole, mm-hmm. right? And in the same way, um, propaganda operates with the uh, Bandera, who was a fairly minor figure and now is seen as the, uh, the prototype of every Ukrainian, uh, right? So Not a minor, but a marginal. Marginal, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, not a mainstream hero. But, but not a representative of the Nazis as well. Right. Not yeah. even. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, since uh, Max mentioned Lesnitz's uh, Bab and Yar, um, could we somehow put in um, conversation Mariana Kianovska's approach to how we talk about the Bab and Yar massacre and Lesnitz's approach, how to portray uh, the uh, um, the massacre uh, because um, Bab Yar by Lesnitsa uh, is sold as some sort of a documentary film. However, even that documentary film um, uses not every single uh, footage that was available at some point, but um, those episodes are chosen and therefore they construct some certain approach to how we view or even how we talk about that context. So I'm curious about this uh, opportunity, right? Uh, what we can get in terms of understanding the massacre if we put together Mariana Kianovska's Bab and Yar and Lesnitsa's Babi Yar, since he's well, using the Russophone, right, uh, version. Lesnitsa is heavily influenced by a montage, and even if we imagine that he managed somehow to include every single documentary footage available, still he would be selective, um, selecting in this montage and constructing a linear story, sort of a narrative. Uh, which is authoritative, right? And what we have here with uh, Kionovska's approach is the multiplicity of voices, mm-hmm. which which is completely different. It is not a single montage of a single narrative line, but multiple speaking individuals whose perspectives often diverge. Um, right, so I think, uh, and we discuss this quite often when we talk to each other about Lesnitsa, but he has this wonderful, uh, he has a wonderful eye, wonderful sensibility, and good sense of rhythm. And so when he does um, films that are considered to be like the, you know, fictional accounts or Igravea, like the, the ones where... Feature films. Yeah, the feature films. Um, it's... Um, the justification for his approach um, is uh, completely different than when he claims to be doing documentary. So what he did in 
Babillar is uh, clearly using uh, archival and documentary materials, but it's not a documentary film because he does not attempt to uh, represent something like a historical truth. Right. When he is portraying like Ukrainians greeting the Nazis, for example, we've had a, hu- a, a tiny Ukrainian population at the time that the Nazis entered. It had been 85% reconstituted. Um, after the World War II, in part because of the population exchanges and because it was really, it had a very different demographic. It was mainly Poles and Jews and uh, some Ukrainians and some other nationalities, but it it wasn't this massive greeting by one um, um, group in the demographic. Right. And uh, he chooses to portray it like that. Why? Well, because it does resonate with the contemporary, I think, Russian agenda and expectation that um, Ukraine is uh, in the hands of uh, some kind of Nazi um, opportunists and um, is justifies implicitly the current special operations. So I think there is a way in which he is working for the enemy, whether he admits it or not, and in which his narrative is feeding and nourishing the justification that the enemy uses for the invasion. And of course, authorial agenda is reflected in montage one way or the other, especially for a person who thinks that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the biggest drama, and that after a collapse of Soviet Union, all of those former Soviet republics are they don't differ from one another, which means it is possible to actually make a movie about, say, Russia and Ukraine or in Kazakhstan or elsewhere. And then the question that emerges is what makes Ukraine unique, if anything? What is the story to tell about Ukraine? And then the first thing that comes to mind would be all of those collaborants uh, with Nazis, right? There is nothing else much in Ukraine that we see in uh, this documentary or other films. It's more centered on Homo Sovieticus and the problem of the Soviet man in the post-Soviet world. Right. Every time the Ukrainians distinguish themselves, like as non-Soviet, it's uh, by means of appeal to some kind of Nazi narrative. Like there is no um, autonomous Ukrainian identity to speak of. There are either Soviets or there are Nazis, and that's mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. we have to choose between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as uh, even the um, uh, Valuiv circular was also describing Ukrainians who were identifying themselves as Ukrainians, um, criminals, right? It was mentioned in the document that um, they are uh, criminals. Uh, I wanted to go back to um, that idea about uh, Mariana Kianowska's volume as a multiplicity of voices. And I'm wondering what kind of tone runs through the poems. I can by feel that there is some sort of apologetic tone for speaking up. Um, so the victims died and they were killed, but they don't want to disturb us as we are, uh, as they're gone and nothing can be changed. But um, just giving voices to the dead uh, does change everything. They are resurrected for us to confront the painful past and for us to remember. And there is this line in the volume, um, uh, now I must head out, I can't go on, something seizes me and shakes me and shakes my frame, I won't die, I won't disturb a soul, only pain, this pain is what remains. So w- what kind of tone runs through all the poems in your opinion? Well, I think there is a big range, so... 
most of the voices are voices of women and children. And there are some voices of uh, older men and maybe one or two voices of men who we feel are probably younger. Um, I mean, some are like children, like maybe they're 17 or 16. But there are some also of uh, men who chose to stay because of some kind of family situation where they had to care for somebody and they couldn't leave some kind of project. So um, most of the voices are telling stories about where the voice is coming from. So quite a few of them are contextualizing the environment and um, telling of various details in which this news, this realization that they're going to, go, to, to die is coming to them. And... Um, one reason why we thought that the voices maybe are a bit apologetic and uncanny is because um, the voices possess the knowledge that only the author could have possessed. So um, the characters within the context couldn't have known that they're going to die in this specific way, in this specific place. They didn't even have a name for the place. While in the poems, many of them are saying, oh, like from Baban Yar here, and uh, like in Baban Yar we are heading. And um, as we said, they were just told to show up at this intersection, which was way off and where Baban Yar didn't yet have that the meaning that it has now, that it has acquired through these tragic events. So... In some sense, I think it's um, maybe um, a slight uh, superimposition of the authorial discomfort at having to take this perspective, this extra knowledge, illicit knowledge, really, that she is bringing to the situation despite herself, because she knows what is going to happen to these characters within their different lives, within their different moments and situations. And the characters don't. So there is this, um, I don't know, there is this, uh, what, fourth wall between them where um, it's as if she has them speak against their will, against their knowledge, against themselves. Um, and, and through herself, through her own poetic voice, right? Which is also full of characteristics of rhymes and meters and preferences. And it's, it's not clear that she is aware that she is doing it because the way that she came to write this volume um, from the author's own words is uh, it was incredibly fast. It was maybe um, she wrote about 200 poems within two months and they came to her as voices. So she was in this altered cognitive state where she felt like she was being a medium that was channeling the voices of the dead through her and that she was chosen because she is a good poet. So she was able to catch them in this particular uh, crystalline form in which they could then communicate to an audience and make themselves known. Um, well, this is about inspiration and motivational impulse, but at the same time, she gives credit to tradition. Um, it's rhymed. Um, it's very close to other Ukrainian poet, uh, poems for, within the same tradition, right? And sound similarity is definitely the driving principle of word combination. Mm-hmm. As you see, assonances and uh, alliterations um, quite dominant in the Ukrainian originals. So, um, yes, it is within Ukrainian poetry at the same time. Right. So there are lots of um, sort of, I guess, uh, routine expressions of guilt 
and self-consciousness about being a survivor of this massive tragedy because everybody was aware of what happened during the battle, battle of cave on the one hand and being in the midst of this um, deathbed basically which cave became in that september and august but also um, the guilt uh, for now speaking about this, bearing witness to this, assuming that one was a survivor. And I think she only has um, two or three voices of survivors. Most of the other ones are destined to die and they speak, um, uh, their voice comes from these last moments of their lives or as they're awaiting um, the last weeks or the last days. Right, and yet formally, uh, voices are individuated, differentiated by various meters. We might say that as well. It is not a single poetic meter sort of a voice. Um, and also, even if all of these poems were based on actual historical documents, they still would be become or be rendered imagined because of aesthetization and poetization. Mm -hmm. That would be inevitable. So a child's voice is rendered in this very childish verse, like a nursery rhyme. And uh, a bride who lost her groom, her voice is also rendered in something that very much resembles a wedding song. Mm -hmm. um, and um, she does this to individuate um, voices formally in, uh, in a number of instances. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this point that you made. Um, uh, Mariana Kianowska was writing these poems very fast, and she felt like she was broadcasting voices, right? Um, there is a lot of emphasis on close family relations in these um, poems, particularly children and mothers. And uh, as you pointed out, they were all somehow driven to the ravine and they were witnessing uh, each other being executed. Um, I'm wondering what are the repercussions of these familial and generational disruptions on the collective level, uh, as well as um, how these disruptions shape uh, collective traumas and if there are any ways for either processing the um, this this specific trauma and for healing is is some sort of healing is possible while remembering right while while remembering the massacre um, as uh, I think at the beginning of our conversation Max pointed out that some distance some time distance is necessary in order to um, start speaking about this tragedy on the one hand distance can help I mean, time distance can help. On the other hand, time distance can create some space for forgetting as well. We can start answering this question with a specific example of a poem where we have a, a couple, married couple of uh, Jew and Ukrainian, right? Ukrainian mm -hmm. woman, and then uh, her husband is a Jew who mm -hmm. dies in Bab and Yad. And that's a family drama. And that's a common drama. And if we um, take it to a larger level, then it's the same as Ukrainian Ukrainians living with the Jewish population in Kiev forming a family. And that's a family drama. And that's a part of our history. From a global level, um, his dramas of history unites us. Unite us. Like uh, so much attention was actually paid to the uh, presumably the trauma of the collapse of the Soviet Union, especially in texts uh, by Svetlana Alexievich, right? And in like Afghan war was um, often presented as a 
drama that pertains to ever Soviet citizen and so on. So some dramas we no longer identify with. Some are now in the context of most recent events and of Russia's full-scale invasion became of smaller significance. But other dramas uh, were triggered, remembered again, triggered by, by this war, by Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think it's a it's a very tricky balance between forgetting and oh. knowing what to forget um, and healing, right? Because you do need some degree of forgetting in order to heal. Um, and reconciliation between communities that had been at war require a certain amount, not just of forgiveness, but also of forgetting of certain things. At least they should not be, you know, graphically flashing before your eyes if you're going to have a sustainable relationship with, say, your neighbors in the future, knowing that your neighbors had uh, been involved or endorsed committing certain crimes. But if there are these voids that everybody is, knows or senses but are walking around that, to un, that, that makes us unable as a community to uh, confront what exactly we are going to pick and choose, like what are we going to remember, what are we going to forget and how. And so I think it's um, Babin Yarbakyanovska is the sort of monument, a monument in words of the particular kinds of voices. It's clearly not the specific voices, but the kinds of voices that um, were cut short, that couldn't speak and couldn't tell their truth, and that we must um, try to reconstruct and listen to as they could have sounded uh, when they belonged to the living beings. So the, the kinds of very ordinary stories, the ordinary lives that had been destroyed by these events and often events that were preventable. There was nothing, you know, necessary um, about the execution of that population or about any other population. These are not natural disasters. Um, these are entirely orchestrated, uh, created by us, by the human systems of um, division and uh, exploitation and um, discrimination that have been put in place to serve members of some communities over others. So um, it's confronting, I guess, these patterns of uh, injustice also that uh, remembering very specific victims enables us to do. So always it's about particulars, but also it's about these universal mm -hmm. um, universal tendencies, you know, when we talk about the Russian atrocities, right. um, when, for example, Max, who is from Crimea, is talking to his mother, who is still in Crimea, about these things, she says, but, you know, if you stayed, had you been here, you would have been on this other side, you would have thought very differently. And I think there is an insight in that, that in many ways, we are... Um, not beyond our time and not beyond our context. And there is a lot of moral luck in being on the right side of history. And you can just really luck into the wrong side, not because you're bad, but just because you're weak or you're foolish or, you know, like many, you're an idiotas, you're like a non-specialist in this particular thing that's like geopolitics or war. And so you fall victim and commit atrocities, um, and that's on you, but 
I could have been in that situation or another person. But here you can draw a line between poetry and ideology. Ideology tries you to uh, tries to convince you to go and kill some innocent people, especially Russian ideology right now. And poetry just makes you sympathize with those innocent people killed, uh, right? And and again, um, it is about particulars, but also it's about the choice for Kianovsko to pay to give precedence to this drama and to pay more attention to this specific trauma in the context of Ukrainian war that's mm-hmm. lasting since 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, some sort of a follow-up on uh, what um, you were uh, just um, describing. Uh, killing is not only one of the central themes in this volume. It also beca- becomes normalized at some point, if not trivialized, in the way about um, how protagonists talk. Well, unfortunately, we are witnessing the same situation today when Russian soldiers carry out massive extermination of Ukrainian citizens. And the world somehow still is quite um, hesitant to introduce quite um, decisive measures against uh, Russia. So what's the ontology of trivializing cruelty? And if Boban Yar can um, provide us with some sort of answers against trivialization, cruelty, and uh, terror? Mm -hmm. Right. And we often see this in in public discourses now. So when you bring up the situation in Ukraine, for example, people say, well, but what about um, American intervention in Iraq? Or what about um, Bosnia? Or what about the, you know, the Athenian massacres uh, during the Peloponnesian Wars? So every time you basically, um, every time you bring up other other contexts in which people have done these things to each other, um, you are, what you're saying, I think, is that this is not so unusual and your trauma is not unique. And the undesired effect of understanding that this is human behavior and so it can change is that this is human behavior so it cannot change. So it's as if uh, this is, you know, the inevitable... um, you know, like they say, every time some other person is raped, is like boys will be boys. Like this is just what men do, and uh, various other things like this. So I think it's a very similar pattern of normalizing violence that we actually have uh, a choice against. Treating um, it as a normal part of human nature, right? And it is a part of human nature. It's a matter of whether we endorse it or not, whether we accept it in others and say that this is the way ants behave, this is the way that, um, I don't know, dog packs behave, this is the way territorial animals generally behave. And so as if that gives us humans some kind of justification to not try to do any better. It's like you um, settle down into your... um, lowest nature instead of trying to come up with a system in which we could uh, form a world that is more just to the vulnerable and the weak and those that are least protected by the normal systems of wealth and power. But here I think what really works poetically in the voices of Bob and Yad is that repetition as a poetic device and repetition of all of these violent scenes, they actually do not trivialize violence, they work to the opposite effect mm. of amplifying the, the experience of horror and terror, and you will see how it works as I read some of the poems. Um, and the, on the opposite end, there would be 
an inclination towards aesthetization of violence, which would be justification of violence, and that is definitely not what we see in this book. Um, as, as some other poets who tried to make sense of atrocities of war would refer to Guillaume Apollinaire, who also wanted to make sense of those atrocities and aestheticized violence to an extent, like a beautiful dance with ladies and fireworks right? exploding in the sky. Uh, Max, uh, could I ask you to read one more poem from The Voices of Babanyar? At the train station, two found rest in, the th- in a third one's arms, the younger one on the top of her heart, the older one by her side. The station sparrows have a new cause for alarm, guessing the language so as to avoid a stray bullet. Figures collecting rubbish, the extraneous useless bodies, the useful ones lined up into ranks, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. The sparrows observe it from all their posts, over, above, beside. Note the restraint and order, no millet but bullet holes in the coats. Anyone here speak Yiddish? He's lying around like a Jewess with her two kids, idling shamelessly in a public place, motionless bodies, rigid, sparrows suddenly turn into flying targets. A submachine gun plays a game with them, one, two, three, one, two, three, all things pass. A train comes to a full stop, toot, toot, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, chimes in the harmonica. Thank you so much. I think, in part, the perspective of civilians makes it impossible exactly. to um, really um, aestheticize the violence. Um, I think you can do it, but you'd need a different perspective. You can almost see it, though, when she describes the German officers, like the German officer smile that's young and sincere, and he's so beautiful. Um, he appears so beautiful in the poem, this uh, vehicle and tool of uh, genocide. Mm-hmm. We know this about him, but that's not the appearance that is being created. Well, uh, thank you so much, um, Oksana and Max, for this conversation today. Uh, with Without any sort of exaggeration, uh, Mariana Kianovska's uh, piece of writing is some sort of sacred piece of writing for me. And I feel like I'm going to ruin this special aura about this uh, volume if I say something uh, in addition to what already has been said. So I will just encourage our listeners to get the book, to read the book, and to internalize uh, the poems. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing this um, volume uh, to Anglophone readers. Thank you so so much much for talking to us. Today I spoke with Oksana Maksimchuk and Max Rosachinsky about Mariana Kianovska's The Voices of Baban Yar, published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.